Thanks, James. As James said, my name is Kendall, and I didn't mention this in the first service, but I'm, I'm a lonely father today, too. Last night, my daughter came down with 101 fever, so uh, Shannon's at home with her. Just if you would pray for her. Uh, my sweet baby's not with me, so it's kind of sad. But uh, over the last two weeks, what we've really been talking about is love as you have been loved. And two weeks ago, what we talked about is that love is an action, that love is something that you do. Love is something that doesn't just wait, it goes and does. But then last week, we said that love speaks. And I love how Michael used the quote, um, I don't even know who said it either, that in all ways and all times we preach the gospel and then only sometimes we use words. And I loved how he pointed out that it's not really biblical because we should be leading the way in, in speaking the truth of the gospel and, and not inactive but proactive in, in a loving way. But as I walked away from both of those services, I, I have to be honest with you, I wondered how do they work together? Is it love or is it speaking? And what are the correlation between the two? And as I was praying about that, it was really awesome that the Lord brought up the idea of being a father and how a father can speak love over his children, but at the same time, he's modeling it for them. He's doing it for them. He's showing them. So that today, really, what a lot of what I'm going to say is going to be filtered through the lens of a father. Because as the video said, we have a good father in God. Now, this also reminds me of something that happened recently, and I'd like to share with you. So I'm in my living room, and lots of work to get done. So I finish up what I'm doing in there, and I'm going to the bedroom. So as I'm walking along, my bedroom's this way, but something from this side actually grabs my attention. And what it was was my daughter's bedroom. So I open the door, and I look, and it was a horrible disaster. My daughter's sitting down on her little pink chair, and I barely even noticed her with her arms folded and frustrated because she's in an epic mess. And I did what any good father would do. I launched right into a sermon. Maybe it was because I'm currently, I was currently in preaching class. Maybe it was because the Holy Spirit came upon me. But whatever it was, I started rapid-fire quoting Bible verses from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, about what it looks like to have a clean room, what it looks like to be orderly. <laughs> I, I illustrated it with examples from the Garden of Eden, from the Tabernacle, and from the New Jerusalem. I was on fire. This was probably the best sermon I've ever preached. I wrapped it up with a conclusion that would have made the roughest man cry. It was epic. It was great. And she looked like she was listening to me. So as I'm walking out, getting ready to leave, I, I didn't forget the application. I said, Haley, I want you to go and clean likewise. <laughs> and then I went and did my work. Well, what I found interesting was, is when I came back at the end of the day, I didn't find a lot of likewise. I didn't find what I expected because her and I didn't share the same vision. We, didn't, we weren't on the same page. I was communicating one thing, and she was hearing another thing, so that it taught me something really powerful about communication. It taught me that sometimes you can't just tell somebody something. You have to show them something, and that's especially important coming off the back of the last two weeks where we've talked about both, because it is both. In New England, in California, in South Carolina, North Carolina, anywhere you can go, if you tell somebody that you believe in the gospel... You're meaning one thing, but they might be hearing something completely different. They might be hearing moralism. They might be hearing legalism. They might be hearing Bible thumper. And here you are just talking, man, I love Jesus. But if we're not showing them, if we're not demonstrating that, then is the message well received? And that's kind of what I want to talk about for the rest of our time here today. 
So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Philippians 4, and we're going to be in verses 2 and 3, and we're going to look at another epic mess. We're going to look at a mess that's not somebody cleaning the room. I don't know of a biblical example per se of that specifically, but we're going to be talking about two relationships that were in an epic mess. So again, it's going to be Philippians 4, 2 through 3, and in this passage, we see both doing and speaking beautifully tied together. So here we go. I plead with Euodia. Now that's a very interesting name. Not because we don't hear about Euodias anymore, but in Greek, the root, if you trace it back, actually means someone who likes order, structure. She's kind of like the homeschool mom. Kids are up at 7.05. Kids are eating at 7.15. They're out the door at 7.27. I don't even know why it's 7.27, but she's that prepared. And this is someone who loves order and structure, but yet Paul also says, I plead with syntyche, which is another interesting word because in Greek it means someone who makes mistakes, who's prone to accidents. And I think about these two personality types, these two women, one's got a beautiful home and one comes and spills the grape juice on the carpet. We've already got a problem. But beyond that, Paul goes on and says, for you two to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, my true companion, this is another person in the story. This is somebody who Paul had intentionally poured into, someone who he had discipled, someone who knew Paul so well that it was almost as if they shared the same mind, the same vision. And he says to this person, help these women since they have contended at my side in the, in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of the co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. So what was happening? These two women were at odds with one another. They were in a conflict with one another. And as we think about as dads, and I'm speaking to everybody, but you know, I'm focusing in on the image of a father. How is it that we have led our family successfully through conflict? And as I thought about that, I thought that there was one thing that I've noticed that usually causes conflict in my home. You see, the people who need me the most are my children. But when the people who need me the most feel like they have me the least, then tensions rise. You see, when the people who need me the most, who depend on me the most, have me the least, then tensions start to rise. And this is exactly what's going on in Philippians. Here, Paul is the man who founded this community. He discipled these people. He poured lovingly into these people, set the vision for the community. But yet right now, Paul is writing from prison. He's rotting away in a jail cell, not with them. And when he is absent... There's tensions that are starting to rise. These two women, I don't know if they had the issues that I described earlier or not. Their names are awesome. But they were at odds. Now, you may be asking yourself, Kendall, why are you applying Paul to like a father? Uh, why are you talking about Paul in this type of language? And it's really interesting to me. Paul didn't have any kids. Paul was so busy with the gospel, he didn't really have any kids. And, and that's great. But what Paul does Multiple times in the book of Philippians, he uses, he uses family language. More than any other book in the New Testament, he uses family language in the book of Philippians. One very specific example that I find interesting is in chapter 2, verse 22, where he says that Timothy struggled along with him like a son to a father. He applies sonship to Timothy, and he is literally saying that I love Timothy so much that I feel a fatherly affection towards him. In Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 15 it's another community that Paul loved and cherished. He says that he was the spiritual father of the entire community, that they were his spiritual kids. And it just again shows the type of man that Paul was, that he deeply loved the people that he ministered to. 
and he felt like a father, and we'll see in here that he acts like a father instead of an apostle. It's really interesting. Now, I know most of us probably don't have the excuse for missing church today that we were arrested for the sake of the gospel. Um, we live in a country where it's a little touchy sometimes to share our faith, but it, we're not being arrested. But what's far more likely is that today as men, we're physically present, but our minds are far from this place. We're present with our bodies, but yet our minds are thinking about Monday, the project that we have. See, as men, we're tempted to work really long hours. We're tempted to impress our boss. We're tempted to make more money, be more successful, because that says something about who we are. And it also is a way that we've justified ourselves and say that's the way that we can love and care for our family. If we make more money, we can care for them better. But what happens when you're making more money and they're thirsting and starving to death for you? See, the greatest temptation is for us to pour ourselves into the wrong things. And could it be that our family is longing just to be with us? Could it be that the health of our family is not where it should be, that it's struggling just a little bit because we've been far away from them? Could it be that we've not loved them as we have been loved? And how have we been loved? God, who rules the entire universe, which that's a bigger and more powerful job than I'll ever have. He keeps the sun in motion. He keeps the stars burning. And yet he loved us enough to come to earth, to live with us, to walk with us, to dwell with us. And if he cared that much for us, then how much more are we diligent? Are we leading the way in, in making a way for our kids? Now, your objection might be that your family's healthy and you have to work and you've got bills. I totally understand that. Trust me. <laughs> I definitely understand what it's like to struggle. Even today, I know what it's like to struggle. Paul tells us that it's okay to work hard, that it's okay to pour yourself into your job in order to support your family. He says it in 1 Timothy 5.8. He says, anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. You see, for Paul, it's not a problem to say that men are made to work hard. Men are made to love their families by supporting them and protecting them. But what Paul also says, he doesn't leave that just hanging right there. What he also says is that what he would rather do is die and be with Jesus in chapter one of this book. And that's a hard saying, but what he's actually saying is that it's better for him to be with the Lord. But yet, what's so amazing about what Paul said is in chapter one, 24 through 26, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and your faith or your joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. See, Paul's the kind of guy that would delay the joys of heaven in order to pour into the people he had here on earth. In Romans, he says that he would offer up his salvation for his people, the Jews, if they would just believe he was more concerned with others than he was with himself, so much so that, yes, he worked hard, but he also was present with the people that he was with. And when I think about heaven, I think about the greatest thing ever, but would I be willing to delay a promotion in order to pour intentionally into my family? Would I be willing to take less money in order to intentionally pour into my family? Would I be willing to live less extravagantly so that I could shower my family with grace? These are tough questions, but they're questions that 
I personally have to answer because I tend to work too hard. I tend to do too much and I tend to spend too little of my time in the right places. Why? Because disunity occurs in my family and I'm sure in yours when the people who need you the most have you the least. But whether you've been near or far, whether you've been a good or bad father, a good or bad mother, whether you feel like you're present or you're distant, problems are going to come. Conflicts are going to come. It's not just here. Conflicts are going to happen. And if you're not currently going through a conflict, you're soon probably to be. It's just the way of the world. And what I love about this passage is that it gives us two ways that we can be managing conflict in our home. But it, again, if you're not a father, if you're not a mother, it doesn't just have to be. But this is the lens that we're talking about today. Here's the first thing. It says, a good father always gives good instruction. A good father always gives good instruction. Notice what Paul doesn't do. He doesn't sit stewing in a prison cell saying, well, you just wait till I get back there to those Philippians. He gets his pen and he starts writing and he writes and he writes and he writes four chapters that we now know as the book of Philippians, almost 20 times longer than the average correspondence in ancient Rome. It's not as big as Romans, but it is deeply rich and intense and it just shows just how much he loved and cared for this community. I imagine his hand cramping in his little prison cell as he's writing it, rewriting it, trying his best to get exactly what he's trying to say down. Love does speak. And if Paul was here, not Paul Fleming... If Paul was here, he would agree with Michael Davis that love does speak. But what he spoke and how he spoke it are, are very interesting to me. What he spoke was the gospel. Be unified in Christ, which means act like Jesus, think like Jesus, walk like Jesus, the gospel. I love it. But it's how he spoke it that's even interest, more interesting to me. It's how he spoke it that's fascinating to me because he announces two women's names, which in that time was very interesting. It means they're leaders. It means that they're leaders in this church. But what I find even more interesting than that is that he repeated the verb. He said, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche. Why? Because a good father finds creative ways to talk to his children. And all of us understand this. All of us have been through this. When I was a kid, I was a firecracker. And if I would do something wrong, my mom would say, Kendall. But if I did something even worse, it was Kendall Lankford. But there are a few times where I was really bad. And it was all of my names, Kendall Wayne Lankford. And I knew the hammer was about to drop. I inherited that habit. I do that with my kids. But when two of them are at odds with one another, let's say, for instance, my family, Graham and Haley, Graham the introvert, Haley the extrovert, I repeat the verb as well. I say, Haley Grace Langford, you go to that corner. Xander Graham Langford, you go to that corner. And what I'm doing is I'm highlighting their individuality. I'm saying that I honor you and I honor you and it's an equal thing, it's a shared thing, but the verbal action is applied to both because both of them are the ones that cause the problem and both of them are the ones that need to be involved in the solution. So I repeat the verb. And I think that's what Paul is doing here. Is he saying, I love you both. But we have to work on this. Now, I want to be very careful when I say this. Because it is a reality in this room that not all of us had a good father. I can't assume that all of us came from a great household. And I can't assume that all of us don't carry the baggage of what it means to come from a broken family. And even that, some of us didn't have a father at all. 
And for years and years and years, we've carried the weight that we were abandoned. And we've asked hard questions like, were we really loved at all? Some of us had a father, but he wasn't the father who made us. And even though he might have been a good father, he wasn't our father. And there's still a hole. There's still something there. And if this is your story, I just want to say I'm sorry that you didn't have a father like you wanted. I'm sorry that you didn't have the man in your life to show you instead of just telling you with words. But I also have really good news. Because if you are in Jesus Christ, then you've been adopted into a brand new family. You have a good, good father. You have a father who's good even when he corrects you. You're in a healthy family now. No longer do you have to live your life as if it were the record of a broken past. Now it can be a celebration of the most promising future that you could have ever imagined because you are in Christ and you are now in God's family. And that should excite us. How does a good father instruct us? How does a good father speak? Our father gave us 66 books to teach us who he is, what he is, how he loves, and for us to live in light, in light of that. What is the Bible about? It's really simple. Jesus Christ is coming. Jesus Christ came. Jesus Christ will come again. And the reason why it's that simple is because if God is our father and we are his broken children, then the only way back into his family is through Jesus Christ. The whole Bible is about Jesus Christ because he's the only reason why we now have a family. I call this the Facebook method. You guys know what I'm talking about? If you're a dad, if you're a mom, brother, sister, aunt, uncle, if you're a person, the Facebook method applies to you. I'm not talking about the social media engine. I'm talking about that us as the people of Genesis, that us as Christians would get our faces in that book and that we would get to know that God who loves us and that we would be able to tell other people about it. That we would be informed by his character because that's where it is in the 66 book love letter that he wrote to us. That's Facebook. If you're a Twitter fan, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I'm not that creative and I don't tweet. Is it tweeting? Why is all this important? Because a good father gives good instruction. A good father gives good instruction. But love doesn't only speak. Love can't only speak. Because if it only speaks, then it's religious rules. If it only speaks, it's moralism, it's legalism. It is what the world typecasts us as. If it's just speaking, then we're communicating a different gospel. We're communicating a false gospel because people are not seeing in us. It has to be shown. Our action has to inform what we say or else it, we're not showing them Jesus, we're showing them us. Because sometimes telling them is not enough. You have to show them. Sometimes telling a person is not enough. You have to show them. Paul does this brilliantly, by the way. Instead of just telling them to agree in the Lord, instead of just doing it in a loving and incredible way like a good father would do, he provides a substitute. He provides his true companion. He provides a person that he had intentionally been pouring into for years who was ready and able to be him for them in a moment's notice. See, he's not providing a helper who will reinforce a moral code or religious system. He's inviting somebody to walk with them, to take them by the hand and show them what it looks like to walk like Christ. Because even in his absence, he was providing them with him. Now, I'm a seminary student, and I love seminary because I get to learn about Jesus. But 
going to be honest, it's hard. And a lot of times I have to spend long hours learning how to, how to do Greek and Hebrew and preach and all these other things that they teach us. And it's as much of a blessing as it is, it, it takes time away from my life. I'm also as blessed as I am. This is, by the way, this is the best community I've ever been a part of. I've been in a lot of churches. I have church hopped many years, but this, I don't want to hop from this place for the rest of my life. I love this place. And as wonderful as this place is, sometimes it takes time to be here. It takes me away from some things. And that's, that's great because God is blessing the ministry of this church. But I need to have a true companion, and I do. My wife, Shannon Langford, is my true companion. And I'm called to pour into her and invest in her and equip her so that if I'm not there, I can still be there through her. But it's not just from me to her. My wife's called to pour into me so that if you see me, you should see Shannon. If you see Shannon, you should see me. We should be so unified and one flesh that when you see one of us, you see the other. And this is what Paul's getting at is that he's already poured into somebody like this. Now, a great example of this in my life is between Graham and Haley. Graham, like I said, is the introvert. Haley is the incredible extrovert. And what happens is a lot of times Haley will see something Graham does and she'll think it's cute. And she'll run over to him and she'll grab him and squeeze his cheeks and say, I love you. <laughs> she can't contain herself. And Graham is like, get off of me. And I notice as she continues, he raises his hand and whap. He's two, by the way. It's not my high schooler. That would be bad. But what I noticed is by telling him no, he wasn't getting it. His hand was still doing the same motion. It was still smacking her across the face, and she was still crying, feeling rejected. And that's not a win in my house. So I started thinking, what, what do I need to do to communicate this to my son? So the next time he did it, he raised his hand, and he went to swing at her face. I grabbed his hand, and I put it on her head, and I said, rub, <laughs> rub. You know, because you have to say it like that in order for it to be meaningful. Rub. <laughs> Shannon started doing it too. And when I wasn't at home, she would tell me, Graham tried to hit Haley again today, but intercepted it. Good job, babe. <laughs> and it took about three months. But I was standing in the kitchen, getting me something to eat, and I, I saw it playing out. And I could leap over the, the little gate thing there and probably kill myself and try to grab his hand, or I could just say no and hope that it worked. And I said, no, and he stopped. And he rubbed her head and he said, rub. And I was like, yes. <laughs> it was amazing. It was, he needed to be shown. I could say no all I wanted to, but at the end of the day, he had to be shown what no meant in that situation. So that now when I said no, it had some weight. He knew what I meant. And as he began imitating us, and a lot of times imitating my wife, because I was tied up at school or tied up, you know, at other things, as he began imitating my wife, his heart began to change. It wasn't just a physical behavior. He was shown how to do it, and he actually experienced a heart change now that he's a very loving little boy, not as frustrated, you know, still not perfect, but we've seen some changes. And it, it just reinforced to me that sometimes telling someone is not enough. You have to show them. Now, you ask, what happens when I'm gone and my kids come up with new and incredible inventive ways of hurting one another? Because they do. 
And if I'm not prepared for whatever the next thing that they did, you know, what do I do then? And I would just say that Paul prepared for it by having a true companion, someone who was so close to Paul that could step into a situation immediately. See, what Paul did not do is react. He didn't sit in his jail cell and send a message through Epaphroditus. It's a guy in the book who sends messages back and forth. He didn't do that and tell somebody, hey, come to the jail cell so that I can prepare you to be my true companion. He already had one in place. See, it wasn't reactive, it was proactive, so that in the context of my home, I have to be proactive before it happens so that I can, if I'm not there, send my wife in while it's happening. In the same way, if my wife's out on a photo shoot and I'm at home watching the kids and I'm not as adept as a, she is, but because she's been pouring into me and teaching me, I can be a substitute. I can be her true companion by being a substitute. So... This message today is not just for fathers. It's for all of us. There's a communication technique here that because we've been loved by God, we can love other people, but we have to do it in concert with showing and telling. It has to be both, or else we've missed an aspect of it. If we just show them and we don't tell them, we're not being faithful. If we just tell them and we don't live a life that's consistent with that by showing them, then we're not being faithful. Both parents in this relationship are integrally important, but everyone in this room can do this. It's not just a parent. It's a show-and-tell kind of love, and it has to be both. Now, no matter where you are today, no matter if you're a dad and you're here and you feel like you've been distant, or if you feel like you have not been close to your kids, or even if you feel like you're the great dad, and if you are, see me after so you can give me some pointers. But no matter where you're at on this, we can become better fathers. We can become good fathers. We can be good fathers for our kids. We can be the kind who draw near to our families. We can be the kind who tell them good instruction. We can be the kind of father or mother who imitates Christ for them. And even when we're gone, we can have provided for them a substitute. And I'm saying that we can do this because I'm confident. I think it's, an actu- I think it's actually a certainty. Why? Because we have been loved that way. Because God, in the very beginning, drew near to us in the Garden of Eden, and he loved us. But yet, when we made an epic mess, much bigger than Haley Grace could have ever made, when we made that mess, and we were lost, and we were sitting on our metaphorical little pink chair with our arms folded, God saw us and gave us his instruction. He gave us his word so that the prophets had his word, we now have his word, and we know the character and heart of God. But he didn't stop there. He didn't stop there because sometimes telling you is not enough. He has to show you. What did God do? God has a true companion. God provided a substitute. Out of all the human beings that have ever existed, out of all the people that could possibly be thrown into this mix called human race, there's one man that could be God's true companion, the only man who could be God's true companion, and that's Jesus Christ. But yet, even more incredible than that is there's only one man who could be our true companion, the only one who was in a position to help us, who stood in the gap between us and God, and that's Jesus Christ. And because of him, now we are in Christ. The very spirit of God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead now lives in us so that we can be good fathers, we can be good mothers, we can be good bosses, we can be good at our jobs. We can act out in the spirit of God because the spirit of God's in us. It's not because we work harder. It's not because we're better. If, if you're like me, you were one of the worst. 
It's because the best is now in me, living out through me, and he's in you. Let's pray. Father God, the gospel is so amazing that you would spend an eternity with your son, Jesus Christ, as true companions, and yet when I mess things up, when I sinned and when I made a mess of my life that you loved me enough to send me your true companion, but yet even more than that, Lord, you were pleased that he would die. God, it made you happy, not because Jesus died, but because now I was going to be your son, and not just a son, I was going to be your heir, and all of us, Lord, are now children of you because of what you've done through Jesus Christ, and Lord, it's, it's ridiculous, and it's amazing, and Lord, if we're not excited about it, let us repent, because this is the single greatest thing that's ever happened in human history. God, thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're a Christian and you've been walking with Jesus for a little while or a long while, communion's for you. It's a place where it's a show and tell kind of thing. You know, when you're in kindergarten, you get something and you show it and you tell it. Jesus at a table knew how we were and he told us that this is the new covenant. He showed us with his bread. He had a little show and tell service so that as you walk up to the table and you grab that bread, that's the body of Jesus. And when you take that blood, that's the, or that juice, I hope we don't have blood. <laughs> it represents it. Um, but as you take that juice, that is the blood of Jesus for you. It's not a light thing, it's a heavy thing. And, and I pray that you would just celebrate in that reality.